0: Thanks, Steve. Well, good morning, and welcome to church. Love to add my welcome to Lachlan's. My name's Rowan. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, so great to see you here. Love to catch up with you after the service. Uh, we, we're continuing, as Lachlan said, in this book of James and thinking through how faith and works go together. So we're going to pull out your outline and keep your Bible open. Uh, I want us to start this morning by thinking through the unexpected. As I look back over my life, one of the things I'm struck by is just how much of life is unexpected. I didn't expect there to be crazy stuff hanging from the ceiling today as we walked into church. Right? I'm like, what is this? And then I remembered I was here for the year six graduation because Nathaniel graduated this week from school. Um, and they had this here and I thought, oh, I wonder what we're going to do with that. And then it was here, so I should have expected it, but I didn't. And then so now we're stuck. So if you can't see, sorry. <laughs> Sometimes life's unexpected moments are wonderful moments, aren't they? Things that come along, a friend you haven't seen in years pops in, you get a promotion, something kind of happy happens, and you're like, wow, that was great. And you kind of turn to God and go, thank you, God, how great are you? And you're kind of excited about life's unexpected blessings. But at other times, the unexpected moments aren't so great. Uh, three weeks ago, I preached on, on James 3. I preached at uni church. I felt like, oh, that was a good talk. It was helpful. I went home. I was tired. And I was like, okay. I went to sleep and then woke up at 2 a.m. not being able to breathe. I had this massive weight on my chest. And my first thought was, this is unexpected. It really was. I was like, what is going on? There's there's a problem here. Googling panic attack, heart attack, what, what, what is happening? And I'm like, why, God, why does this happen? It ended up just being a virus that kind of somehow inflamed my heart. But I ended up spending three days in hospital. I'd planned that week to have time to kind of plan for next year. And instead, I'm sitting in hospital going, why? This is so unexpected, so frustrating. Why does this happen? And I'm sure all of us have felt the unexpected sadnesses of life uh, concerning our health, concerning um, someone who's died, losing our jobs, investments, losing their value. We all come across things that are unexpected. And the question for us is, how do you cope with life's unexpected moments? How do you cope with the unexpected? What goes through your head when these things come along? No matter what your view on God or religion or life is, all of us have unexpected moments. How do you cope? What happens when your health fails? Where does your head go? When depression creeps in and you can't work anymore, what do you start thinking about? How do you cope with these moments? What happens when a child dies, your child? Or maybe you just feel the the pain of being incredibly lonely. How do you cope? Where do you go? Who do you turn to? What I want to show you today is what James is showing us about how to cope with life's unexpected moments. James is showing us that when you boil it all down, the way we react to unexpected moments is shaped by two things, no matter who you are. The way you react is shaped by two things, and that provides the structure of a talk today. Number one, your view of the world, and number two, your view of God. The way you react to unexpected moments is shaped by your view of the world and your view of God. See, if this life is it, if our view of the world says this is it, this is all there is, we eat, we sleep, we we live, we die, then we're going to live life now trying to wring every drop out of it. We're trying to get the most good out of life that we can. And then when tragedy comes along, it becomes devastating because it's stolen some of my life's joy. I've only got a certain amount of lifetime for here and now. And so our view of how the world works shapes how we respond. But in this part of the book of James, God wants you and me to understand that his world is a little different than that. He's a little different than that. James has spent these first five chapters showing us what faith looks like. Not the kind of faith that people say, oh, you just got to have faith. You know, um, you just got to believe you can fly to the moon and back and it will happen. You, you just got to push aside all reason and maybe it'll be OK and your faith will get you through. Not that sort of faith. No, that's a blind faith. James is saying the type of faith we are to have is one that is grounded in history. It grounded in God's action in the past and what he has said throughout history and that we can trust him at his word. The, The historical reality of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, that those events happened and Jesus said that would happen. In fact, the prophets even earlier said that would happen. And so we can trust that this God will keep his word, that he is faithful. And so therefore, if we have a real faith, a real trust in Jesus, That will change the way we live and change the way we view the world and the way we view God. So let's have a look at the way we view the world. When we view the world, as I've just explained, as if this life is all there is, James tells us all sorts of atrocities happen. Come with me from James 5 verse 1. "'Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you.'" It's a happy start, right? You're kind of like, whoa, okay, he's not holding back. Your wealth has rotted you. So your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Like, what is going on there? Firstly, how do gold and silver corrode? Because like they, they don't corrode if you know your kind of metals and how that works. But what he's saying is that, 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 they, that they're disappearing. And then they turn into flesh-eating fire in our pockets. Like, you know, what, is, what is going on? You have stored up treasure in the last days, and that is the problem. The people that James is talking about here, who are living for a view of the world that says this is all there is, are, are seeking and running after wealth and, and clothing and all these good things, the desires of life and luxurious living. Have a look what happens in verse 4. They live in a way that lives for the right now and for the wealth. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your field cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Here is a picture of a world that is living for the here and now of people that are saying, I must get the most out of life. And so they seek wealth, they seek um, luxury and and indulgence and excess. And I've got to be honest, there's something alluring about that view of the world, isn't there? There's something alluring about just having all the money that I need, never having to struggle and being like, sweet, I've got money in the bank. I'd love to have that. But then I think, man, I'm, I'm so much richer than so many other people in the world. Or to be able to just have clothes that, well, moths don't seem to be my problem. They, just, they shrink, all my clothes. Have you found that? Anyway. And, and, then, and then the, the lifestyle. I, I just spent some time um, doing um, a master's paper in Israel and, and Greece. And I, I just suddenly I felt this travel bug go, oh, I'd love to travel more. I'm like, that's what heaven's for, Rowan. <laughs> That's the eternity of when Jesus comes back. And actually, yes, there's great things that we've seen. And there's nothing wrong with traveling, but I really want to go to this lifestyle that's easy and that has got all the stuff that I want and I can can travel around and maybe go back and spend some time on a Greek island. And it just sounds great, right? But it's not a very very positive picture that James points. These people are weeping and wailing. Why? Because they got their view of the world wrong. Because... They were living to store up treasure in the last days, to store up treasure now. They were living for the here and now, thinking that this was all that there is. And so they acted in horrible ways towards the world around them. They they didn't pay their workers. They just self-served themselves. It's important to note the issue here isn't having money or wealth. It's a view of the world that sees that money and wealth and lifestyle and experience is all there is. The here and now is all there is. Now, the people James is writing to are not like the rich described in that first section. He's describing others, I think, at that point, and recognizing the reality that they are in as the persecuted people. Uh, The first century Christians, they weren't generally the high flyers of society. They weren't the ones getting their wages. So they were the ones getting their wages withheld. Uh, being taken advantage of, persecuted in their way of life. People didn't think Christians were great. The Jews didn't love Christians. The Romans didn't love Christians because they were worshipping another God. No one really liked them. And so as James writes this letter to the brothers and sisters in in the church, he's saying, this is what you're living amongst and people are living this way. Now, we need to stop for a second and say, some of us do have wealth. Some of us do have uh, our employers and we need to think through the way that we're acting now. And we need to ask ourselves, is my view of the world shaping how I use the resources God has given me? But to those who are being persecuted, James writes that that view of the world misses a very real reality. The view of the world that says that this is all there is misses out on something that is so important. And it's this. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Amongst the persecution from the world around them, James writes to these Christians scattered amongst the world, living for the here and now, reminding them that they have a different view, God's view. Look at verse 7. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains? You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. As the unexpected comes, as they suffer all sorts of persecution and suffering, as life goes ups and downs, James says, remember your view of the world. The Lord is coming. There's something happening soon. Jane says it's near. That will put an end to the unexpected hurt and pain. That will put an end to the worldview that this is all there is. The Lord is coming. Now coming is, is kind of a... It doesn't quite get the, the sense of what the original word says. Um, I hate it when preachers talk about Greek in sermons. I've got this like thing. I'm like, why do they do that? They bring up some Greek word just so that they can say they know Greek. It's so annoying. I hate it. So when I do it, uh, it's only because there's something important behind it. Uh, and that, is, that word coming is not the normal word used for coming and going in, in the Bible. It's actually a word called parousia, which really is, is the special time that a king, when a king comes, it's their kind of announcement, their parousia, their coming, their arrival. So you imagine if someone special is coming to, to town, you don't just say, oh, they're coming. You say it's their parousia, their, their arrival, they're coming right now. Uh, They used it in in Greco-Roman society whenever the king or emperor would come to town. When I was a kid, uh, we used to invite people around after church on Sundays. My family did. I grew up in in a family that went along to church and that trusted Jesus. And we'd invite people back to our house. And we lived about 20 minutes from where our our church was. And so I remember as a kid, always longing for the moment that the the visitors would come to our, our place. Now, I was an only child and didn't have... Kind of, We lived on acreage, and so there weren't many people around. So visitors coming, I was like, oh, this is great. And I'd be so excited about people coming. And I would sit in the front room of our house that had these curtains, and kind of peek through the curtains, waiting for the, the visitors to come. Did anyone else ever do that? Or was it just me? It was... Okay, awkward, no one said it. But maybe if you did. And it's like people would come along. And you're like, oh, this is great. There's people coming to our house. And I'd be waiting, I'd be waiting, I'd be looking. And then they'd drive in the driveway, and I'd run to my room and hide. And then you kind of come out a minute or two later, and like, oh, I had plenty of busy things to do, and now I'm kind of coming out to see these people that are there. And that's kind of what waiting for someone special was like for me when I was a child. But in the Greco-Roman world, when a dignity came to town, they didn't all just sit tight and look out the windows watching for them to come. They went out to meet them. They would actually go for kilometers and kilometers, and the furthest distance they could go, and kind of meet the dignitary right out there, and then come back with them. In fact, some societies knew an emperor was coming, and so they'd build like an arch. And so you find all over the, 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 um, the Middle East and over the Mediterranean areas, these arches, like Hadrian's Arch, when Hadrian came to this place. And you see, it's way, not near the city at all, way, way out. Why do they do that? Because Hadrian was coming, Perusia. And they were so excited about this. that They would go out and welcome the emperor and and then come back to the town where the emperor would be and, and meet them. And what James is saying is that the king is coming. The king is coming. The Lord is coming. The king of kings and lord of lords. The ruler of all rulers is coming. And that is not the end. That's the start of the beginning of him dwelling with us. And then we're going to come back with him. So important is the coming of this King, that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us what it will be like when he comes. Have a look, it's on the screen, and see if you note now what's actually going on. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Have you ever wondered why, when Jesus comes back, the people who are alive at the time meet him in the air? like, what is with that? It just seems a bit weird. Everyone just kind of floats around and you kind of meet him in the air. Then then what happens? Do we go lift off to some cloudy heaven? No, it's the perusia. It's the arrival of the king. Well, every other king, you'd go out to meet them on their way. This king does not come from earth. He comes from heaven. And when he comes back, so important is it that those who worship him are lifted from the ground and meet him in the sky and then come back to earth with the new king who will dwell amongst them. That's what's going on. The king is coming. And part of me wonders if that's why so many people deep down have a desire to fly or maybe to go into space. I, mean, I don't know how this is going to work. Just put your hand up if you're like, yeah, I would love to go into space. Show of hands how many people, if you, you know. Okay, it was real easy too. It wasn't like a space suit and you, know, you could do it another way. Show of hands. Yeah, I was hoping there'd be even more. Because then I'd say there's stitched into us some sort of universal desire to meet God in the clouds, right? And then not back to look on earth, but to meet the Lord who is coming. Maybe that's it. (laughs) The reality of the end of this world and the view of the world we have and its future is that the Lord is coming. And that changes how we think about everything, about life and what we need to get out of it, about what matters now. Part of our problem when we encounter the unexpected, even when we encounter life in general, is that we miss the reality of the return of the Lord. Who got up this morning and went, I'm so looking forward to Jesus coming back. It might be today. You know, I've got to say, I didn't think that when I got out of bed, but I should have because he's coming back and it's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That is the most important thing. Instead of worry about what's going to happen with this or how long our car will go before it needs another repair or all these kind of other things that happen in front of us. We miss how when the Lord comes back, he brings in a new age. Every tear will be wiped away. No more mourning or crying or pain. How much better it is when the Lord comes than all the things of the wealth and the luxurious lifestyle that we chase after in the here and now that are just a mere taste of the reality of what it will be like. Come with me and have a look. Revelation 21. It's where John talks about the return of the Lord. It's on the screen. John says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He's coming to us and he will live with them. He's not just coming to visit, he's staying for good. Uh, They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. Oh. Everything new, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, the unexpected downs of life dealt with, myself, my sinfulness dealt with, and living with the one who made me, seeing God face to face, meeting the King of kings and Lord of lords. How great will that day be? I want to put it to you, something a little bit controversial. I think we, as Christians, are too focused on the death of Jesus. I'm not saying we should minimize the death of Jesus. I'm not saying we should cut back from it. But we're, we're always looking back rightly to Jesus dying in our place and him rising again. And we, we get very focused at Christmas about Jesus coming to earth. And so we should, as, as God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That's amazing. But at the first coming of Jesus, sure, there were some angels that worshipped in the sky and a number of people worshipped him on earth. But when he comes as king and kings and Lord of lords, when he's perusia, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. His glory and power and splendor will be seen over the whole earth. That is what's going to be amazing. I kind of go, imagine being there when Jesus was born and you saw the angels in the sky. It would have been great. But guess what? Imagine seeing him face to face when he comes back. With all authority in heaven and earth given to him, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, the old order of things done away, and him creating everything new. That should captivate us as Christians. The return of Jesus should be front and center for you and me in everything we do. So, James is telling us this coming is near. I'm tempted to go, oh, it's too far off, right? It's been 2,000 years. Likelihood that going to be another 2,000 more is probably high. I don't know. And so I just kind of sit back and but James says, no, take him at his word. We live as if it is near. It is imminent. Any moment Jesus could come back. And we need to have this view because it changes how we cope with the unexpected. It gives life and joy, and helps me to see that there is more than just the here and now. and I don't need to milk every moment out of every day to get all my happiness now, because there is a happiness that is coming, a greatness that is coming that is so much better, and it is near. How that carries me through the ups and downs of life. There is more coming. I so often long for and look forward to the transient. Things that are but a blink of an eye. That's the tragedy of the self-seeking rich in in verses 1 to 5. In the last days, they will see that all that they have worked for will just fade away. It's gone. They will die. It'll be given to someone else or Jesus will come back and it doesn't transfer to the kingdom. They've not trusted the king. They're not ready. And on on that day, the wicked ways we have all acted in will be shown. The self-seeking, leisure-craving lifestyle will point us to that we thought... This world was all there was. As our friends and family look at us, as God looks at us, what, what, what do they see? Do they see people that are living for the here and the now? they see people that are captivated with what is to come, with the return of the King? Or well, for those in the trenches of hardship and struggle, God tells us through James, keep trusting me. Jesus is coming. The King is coming. Be patient. He uses this illustration of the farmer. You know what a farmer does? They they plant seeds. They go out, they plant the seeds in the ground right? and then they wait for the the rain to come so it'll kind of germinate and start and and they sit back and they wait, uh, prayerfully probably, waiting for the seed to grow under the ground, the rains to keep coming and feeding it and the crop to come up and then they harvest it at harvest time. During that time that it's below the surface, they don't go out each day and be like, am I sure it's growing? And dig it up. Oh, yep. Oh, nope. And stick it back in. Imagine doing that every day. Running out. I've got to check all my seeds. like, where would I put that fifth seed? I don't know. It's like, where is it? No, the farmer sits and trusts. Why? Well, because he's seen how the seasons work. He's seen how seeds germinate before. He's probably grown up in a farming community. He's seen it happen before. And so he trusts that it will happen again. James is saying, you've seen how God works. You've heard the stories of how he has worked through bringing Israel out of Egypt and making them into a nation. And, and he's stayed with them through the prophets and he's protected them and he's loved them and he's been their God and they have been his people. You've seen Jesus, God the Son, come and live and die and rise again. You've heard the news of that. And so like the farmer who trusts that the seas will germinate, So we trust that God will return in Jesus and that this will happen and we can trust Him. So we look back to God's faithfulness as we look forward to His return. Friends, this is not our home. This world, not like this. The new creation is is our home. The day when Jesus comes back, the day that God remakes the earth, that is what we are to live for. That is what is to captivate us so James says, amid the trials and sufferings, the unexpected, be patient. Now that idea of being patient, it's not a, a static word, just be patient, okay? Or be patient. <laughs> I hate being patient. <laughs> That's impatient. Anyway, it's, it's not just a static word. It's the kind of idea of going, a yearning, a longing, a pleading. I'm longing and yearning for that return of Jesus. I'm so thankful to God for Auckland Transport. Because it helps me to understand what being patient means. If you're ever standing in one of those bus shelters, what are you doing? You're looking, you're longing, I hope the bus comes soon, I'm going to be late. You're pleading, please bus driver, get here. And then when they come past, please stop. Like, have you seen me? Uh, That helps us to understand what should be going on for the return of Jesus. A longing, a yearning, a pleading far, far deeper than for a bus but I actually don't think patience is our problem. I don't think patience is our problem. It would be if we were actually waiting for something. See, I think our problem is an even more fundamental problem, and that's that we're not waiting anymore. The return of Jesus is not front and center for us. And so when we think about being patient, we, we, what do you mean patient? I'm just, you know, patient for God to provide good things now. No, no, patient for his return, yearning and longing for his return. We're like, what return? Oh, that's right. That'll happen at some point, And we kind of park it off somewhere else. We plan our lives. We plan our future. We plan our holidays. We plan for wealth. We plan for our careers, for our businesses, for our relationships. But we don't plan and long and yearn for Jesus' return when that is the greatest hope we have. King of kings, Lord of lords, go out to meet him, see him come back and make his dwelling among us. How weak and feeble our plans are when we see the joy of what has been offered in Christ. Well, just as important as the return of Jesus is the character of Jesus. Our view of the world needs to be shaped by Jesus' return, so our view of God needs to be shaped the right way. That's point three, if you're following along in your outline. See, if God is some distant kind of chess-playing, dictatorial God in the sky, He's kind of just... If God is there and He's just moving the chess pieces around, it's all very well He's going to come back, but I don't know if I want Him to come back. If He's not good, if He's not nice, if He's not helpful, why why do I want Him to be amongst me? It feels like at times God can be some kind of control freak just toying away with us. And when tragedy hits... If our view of God is that that's what he is like, this dictatorial chess player in the sky, well, we'll just try and live despite him. Sure, he might be coming back, but I don't think you're good or I don't think you're working for my good. I remember that scene from Forrest Gump. Have you seen the movie Forrest Gump? I hope you have. Great movie. Love it. Um, In Forrest Gump, there's this scene where Lieutenant Dan is on a ship and there's this he's out in the middle of the ocean, and this huge hurricane comes through, and he's got this whole moment in his life where he thinks God's dealt him a bad hand, and he's angry at God, so he climbs up, uh, without legs, climbs up the kind of mast of this ship. There's these massive waves, and he's basically in the middle of this storm. He's shouting out to God, and he's like, it's time for a showdown, God. And he's like this battle between him and God, and he literally says, you and me, come get me. And he says this line, You can't sink my ship. And kind of holds his fist up to God as he's in this massive kind of tornado. If our view of God is is that he's this chess player in the sky, that's what life will be like for us. I'm going to hold on despite God. I'm going to beat him. I'm going to hold on and and, and outwin him in life. But that's not what God is like at all. James shapes our picture of God. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. Brothers and sisters... Take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. In the past, God spoke through the prophets. He did what he said he'd do. He told them and they spoke it and it happened. And so people trusted God because his word always happened. Similarly with Job, if you've heard the story of Job, it's, it's a crazy story. Basically, Satan comes up to God and God's like, what are you doing? And he's like, "I'm oh, just looking around, kicking kick the skies, uh, looking for someone to annoy. And God says, have you seen Job? Literally. Now, if I was Job, we'd be like, God, shut up. Like, don't say that to him. But no, God says, check out Job. Now, why would he do that? In fact, God says to Satan, you can go this far with Job. You can take his possessions at first. Then you can take his family and his whole family die. All his children, all at once in a house. House falls down, gone. He loses everything. And then God kind of puts around him these friends who are horrible. The friends say, curse God and die. You suck. That's why this is happening. They're the worst friends ever. And you're like, God, why would you do this? But what we don't realize is that Job needed that. God was faithful and compassionate. Really? Doesn't sound like it. Listen to to what Job says in Job 42. It's on the screen. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who counsels my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. I had heard reports about you, God. I had known about you. But now my eyes have seen you. Now you've caused me to trust in you through these horrible, unexpected ups and downs of life. You've given me all these blessings. You've taken them away. And now I'd heard about you. I'd even said, you know, may the name of the Lord be praised when this stuff happened. But now I've seen you. I've seen your compassionate care. I've seen how you carry me through. God loved Job enough to break him and humble him and bring him to the place where he was even more in love with God than he was at the start. In the same way that a a parent shapes and molds a child to understand how they need to grow up in the world, so God's compassion works through the ups and downs of life. He keeps to his word. He is loving. He does it for our good. Problem is, we're just so mesmerized with the present that we forget Jesus' return we forget us looking more and more like Jesus and, and being shaped into his likeness. And we're like, who is this God? Who is this God who comes and takes away my happiness now? Who reduces my coins, who, who makes my clothes rot or shrink? And we get so caught up in the here and now that we forget he is shaping us so that we might endure to the end to be made more like Jesus on that day Jesus comes back. We forget the great costs Jesus went to, that he died in our place, that he took the punishment that we deserve, that he faced the wrath and anger of God for the times we've rejected him so that we could be forgiven and call him our dad. The way we cope with the unexpected is shaped by the way we view God. He is not some evil dictator we have to fight. But a loving and compassionate Father who is shaping us through the ups and downs of life to be more like His Son. But the other thing about our view of God is also that He is the Judge. As we feel frustrated at the ups and downs of life, of, of the um, inequalities that happen, where, where where people aren't paid their wages, where people are ripped off, where all sorts of atrocities happen, we're to remember that God is also the Judge. He is the Judge justice will be delivered. Look at verse 9. There's a warning for us, but then a statement on the character of God. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another in the ups and downs of life when the unexpected happened. He said, she said. No, no, no. Do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Just as the return of Jesus is imminent, knowing Jesus' character and God's character as judge is so helpful because we know that justice Will be delivered. Justice will be delivered. We don't need to seek it out ourselves. That those who provoke, while it might look like they're getting away with it, in the end, justice will be delivered. I heard a story about um, three guys in Detroit in the 1930s. Uh, they were on a bus, they thought they were really the ants pants. Uh, these guys thought, you know, they they, they ruled the world, uh, as you do when you're probably around 1920. And they got on this bus and they jump in and they see some guy kind of sitting up the back of the bus, just with his hat kind of over his head, sitting in the corner. And so they start you know, saying funny things to him, be like, oh, nice hat, and, you know, all, all that sort of stuff and start jeering him. Anyway, the guy doesn't say a thing, doesn't look up. So they just keep going, like, look how great we are, we are so funny. They're making all these comments about this guy, they, they keep saying horrible things, hurling insults. The guy didn't move, didn't get up at all. And in the end, you'd sit back and you're like, why, why do people do that? Why did all these injustices happen? Then the bus stopped and the guy got up and they looked at the guy and suddenly went, oh, he's bigger than we thought. He'd been kind of slouching in that seat and then saw his chest was kind of wider than they'd thought. And this guy slowly walked down the bus toward them. And just as he got to their seat, he stopped. He put his hand in his pocket, pulled out a piece of paper and put it on their laps and continued to walk off the bus, out the door. The guys were like, far out. That was kind of close. They kind of gather around the piece of paper. They look on the piece of paper and realize it's a business card. And on the business card is three words. And the words were, Joe Lewis, boxer. (laughs) Now, if you don't know who he is, he was the world heavyweight champion from 1937 to 1949. Some say the best heavyweight boxer in the world. They had been provoking the biggest and best heavyweight boxer in the world, not knowing who he was. So often we live lives mucking around and others doing all sorts of atrocities and we forget that there will be a judgment. And what we are reminded of here is that the king who is coming is the judge and he is stronger than any heavyweight boxer in the world. Justice will be delivered. Justice will be delivered. We don't need to take it into our own hands now, sure, we can use the justice that society provides, but I'm not dependent now on ultimate vindication. I'm being proved now that, that I was right and they were wrong because God is judge. God is judge. I don't need to right the wrongs. I can trust He is in control, He is good, and He will judge. The slight problem is, what about what you and I have done wrong? What about the provoking we have done to the judge? the way that we have lived and not put things right with him, how we've hurled insults at him or just ignored him. There's a great guard here for us to remember that we need to live now in light of that judge's return, in the way we treat others, in the way we view money, in the way we speak about others. There's a temptation for us, I think, at this point to, to creep into self-righteousness and to go, you know what, I'm a Christian, I, I've got the right worldview. I've seen it in the scriptures. Uh, and so we start thinking that you know, we go to church, so we're better than others. I care for my neighbor. I'm better than them. I, I love the world rightly. And we can become arrogant and self-righteous in the way we live. And there's a reminder here for us in the ups and downs of life, don't get self-righteous. Remember the judges at the door. Don't complain about others. Go to your God. Trust him. He is coming back. He is good. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He is the judge. And the only reason you can call him your dad is because Jesus died in our place. And we can be forgiven and dealt with. We must remember who we are dealing with in this King of kings and Lord of lords. And so James says in verse 5, 8, strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Hold on. Fix your hearts and eyes, not on the here and now, not on the unexpected, on milking life for all that it's worth, but on the coming of the Lord. And living and treasuring what will last. We need to think of it kind of like this. God doesn't show us all the twists and turns in life. He doesn't map out what life will look like and say you're, kind of, like you're going to do some walk and you can map out the kind of terrain. He just shows us kind of one step at a time, the step that we're on right now. And it's as if in life he's put a curtain between where I am and what's next. There's another step beyond the curtain, but but I don't know what it is. I don't know what it will look like. It could be great joy. It could be great trial and, and sorrow. But I trust that God's in control. And on the curtain, he has painted a picture of this, the return of Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords. I don't know the next step, but as I look up, I see this curtain. And on that curtain, I see the reality of what is near, Jesus' return. And so I can step, trusting. That's what will happen. That is the future. Not having to know all the ins and outs, but trusting he is coming back and that we can call God our dad because he loves us and has shown his love at the cross. The picture we are to have is a picture of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords coming to rescue us. Earlier on this year, I was at home and I was in our house somewhere and I heard these kind of faint cries for dad. And usually, when I hear those, my immediate reaction is to think, oh, it's someone else, right? Because you can just go, they can go to whoever child it is, and it's not, not my child, right? That's the, that's the ideal. I'm like, Dad, it was like there was, a, there was a problem going on. So I kind of got up, walked downstairs, and I heard it was Amy's voice, and she's screaming, Dad, Dad. But she's kind of right out the front. And so I kind of run out the front of our house, and I see her up a tree, hanging from a branch, by two hands, going, Dad, help, help! Right, And she was kind of freaked out, hanging from this tree. So I ran up to her, I grabbed her, as I brought her down, she kind of just hugged me and kissed me, and she said, Thanks, Dad, and I'm holding on to her. A little heart was beating, and she just wouldn't let go. The Christian worldview is like that. While we feel like life is hanging precariously from a tree, we know our dad is coming. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords who will enable us to see God face to face. He is good and He's the King, and He is coming to fix all our problems and the problems of the world once for all, and He is bringing justice with Him. So, all we need to do while we wait is to long and plead while we are holding on to the branch of life for our dad to come. And when He comes, knowing that that is what we long for, to cling to Him. Should we slip, He is there ready to catch us. Jesus has already died and taken the fall. Our future is secure and so we can trust him. So our reality is, while he makes our hearts beat and our lungs fill with air, we long for the return of Jesus, clinging to the hope we have in him, looking forward to the day we see our dad face to face and experiencing the joy that comes with meeting the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Friends, that is the Christian hope. And that changes how I view the unexpected in life, what I live for and what I long for. So James says, strengthen your hearts. Look to his return. That's the key to living the best life now. He's looking forward to when he comes back. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you've not left us in the dark. That you've told us of the return of Jesus and that Great joy that comes, and all mourning and crying and pain are dealt with. We acknowledge that so often we are just captured by the wrong things. Our view of this world is so limited to the here and now. We do not lift our eyes to the future. We ask that you would raise our focus, that our gaze would be fixed on that reality, and that would then shape how we live each day, each month, each year. Father God, we ask that you'd help us to trust you to trust that Jesus is judge, to trust that he is good, and to trust that he is coming back. And may that be central in all we do. And so help us, Lord, to persevere, to hold on, to keep trusting you. In this we pray. Amen.